Welcome to the latest instalment of The Curious Capitalist, brought to you by the Board of Conscious Capitalism in Connecticut. The Curious Capitalist is a series of podcasts where we take the opportunity to not only speak to board members from the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter, but also to business owners, startups and entrepreneurs. The Curious Capitalist is available on all of the world's biggest podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. Never miss an episode again and subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts from. Welcome along to the latest episode of the Curious Capitalist podcast brought to you by the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter. On today's show, I am joined by the Conscious Capitalism Chair, Gavin Watson, as we speak to Ryan Dings from Climate Haven. Now, Ryan is Climate Haven's CEO and has a passion for applied clean technologies. Climate Haven are a community of entrepreneurs who are committed to helping people and startups scale their technology globally. I'm super excited to find out more about how we can save the world. Ryan and Gavin, welcome to The Curious Capitalist. Thanks, Claire. Hi, Ryan. How are you doing? I am doing very well. How about yourself? Excellent. Excellent. Can we start by just you telling us about yourself? Just give us some background and let us know kind of who you are. I would be glad to. So as Claire was very kind in her introduction, I am the founding CEO of Climate Haven, which is a climate tech community focused on serving amazing entrepreneurs based in New Haven, Connecticut. In addition, I also have the privilege of serving as a partner in Connecticut Innovations Climate Tech Fund. So I get the privilege of not only working with amazing entrepreneurs as we build Climate Haven and these entrepreneurs in turn build their companies, but I get the opportunity to invest in some of the best of these entrepreneurs and help provide them with the fuel that they need to build their amazing climate tech companies. I started out my career as a commercial real estate attorney. I am a lawyer by training. And it was when Goodness I was... me, Ryan, how did yes. that happen? How did you yeah. escape? <laughs> well, it's funny because I focused on commercial real estate and construction and became very fascinated with the built environment and worked with a lot of developers, designers, contractors. And what I saw was that the way we built homes, the way we built buildings, the way we kind of designed and built communities felt very antiquated. And so, you know, 15, 20 years ago in kind of the mid 2000s, I really, really fell in love with this kind of new blossoming notion of green buildings, of sustainability, and did leave, did escape, left private practice and started a career that that first took me into building technology and working on green buildings, then into clean energy and, and ultimately into the kind of investment arena and the community building arena, focused on just building and supporting all sorts of great climate technologies. That's fabulous. So what was it about the buildings that you saw that were being built and what sort of things did you see that, that you thought needed you know serious improvement and what were you thinking about with that? Well, it's interesting because buildings in the United States have been built the same way for a very long time. If you go back to the early 1800s, you find 
the balloon framing system that was the way they built buildings then still being used today. You could probably drive around your neighborhood and find a new home under construction. Uh, the framing systems that are being used and the methodologies are the, you know, 200 years old. So I first became very interested in kind of alternative ways to build, you know, from kind of prefabricated methodologies to modular methodologies that would ultimately or hopefully be much more efficient and, and potentially much greener. So that was kind of one aspect of buildings, which, you know, really fascinated me. The second aspect was with regards to the way buildings consume energy. Uh, it's so fascinating to me again that, you know, we created an energy system in the United States where we generate electricity often hundreds of miles away from where it's consumed. We then, you know, send it through essentially these strings held up by toothpicks, you know, across hundreds of miles. And then we deliver it to the source of, of consumption. That always struck me as quite odd because if you have the capability to generate energy on site, why would you not try to generate as much energy on site as you possibly could before you then have to turn to kind of an external source or a grid for what energy you still need. And so that led me to really become interested in, in clean energy, in distributed energy resources, and all the ways we could, you know, not only reimagine how buildings are built, but how buildings, both residential and commercial buildings, and we as end consumers consume electricity. Fabulous. It really makes a lot of sense. There's obviously Passive House and some prefab things. There's a place I happen to be on an island in Maine right now. And there's a place over in Rockland, Maine called Croft House. And what the guy is doing there is he's prefabbing walls and roof parts and things for houses and insulating them with straw. And he packs the, the straw. He's got a special machine he uses to pack the straw in at a certain density so that it gets, you know, our values are really, really good. It's sequestering carbon while he's doing it instead of using, you know, rock wool insulation or foam or something like that. Yeah, there's really cool things like that. And I, and I love your description too about energy. And you do hear a lot these days about how, you know, this transition that we're doing is going to require much bigger grid infrastructure and, you know, running all kinds of wires and things. And, you know, it may require some of that or changing, you know, whether we're running AC or DC through those wires and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, they're just creating electricity locally, storing it locally and using it, you know, locally just makes so much more sense that we don't need to build out all that infrastructure quite so much. It's true. What we're going to need as we make this transition is all of the above. We need to demonstrate that distributed energy resources can be a meaningful part of our grid so that we can ultimately reduce the demand on the grid. And then we're going to electrify. We're going to electrify our transportation sector. We're going to electrify buildings. We're going to electrify a lot of heavy industry. And that's going to put an insane amount of pressure on the grid, which is already under pressure just because it's not properly maintained in the way it should be. And so as you apply that pressure to the grid, there is going to be this intense need to build to build more transmission lines, to build more distribution lines, to upgrade the transformers, to address this electrification. 
as well as the addition of all these variable resources such as solar and wind that are going to come online. So we need to build, we need to build and build and build. But we also need to address the demand side of it and, and think about the buildings we live in and, and apply every possible technology we can to kind of manage demand locally. If we do that, I think we have a good chance of making this energy transition happen. It's definitely going to be interesting, that's for sure. Part of what you were saying there, too, is that not only is there increased awareness, but then we can all adjust what we do a lot and when we do things. When, you know, if we have EVs, when are we charging them? When are we heating our hot water? You know, when are we doing laundry? A lot of these different things we can control so that we can be doing them when electricity is plentiful and the power company doesn't know what to do with it all. There's more being generated than they can find a use for. And then there will be other times where it's in a higher demand. And if there's awareness of when those times are, then people can make, you know, adjustments for that. And if there are systems in place so that people can actually get a benefit for pushing electricity from their EV back into the grid, or at least powering their own home and taking their home off the grid while they're, you know, pulling the power back off their EV, then I think that that sort of thing would make a lot of sense. Is that the sort of thing you're thinking also? For sure. I think consumers and all, all of us as individuals, we're going to need help because what we have to do in order to have the demand side or the consumption side of all this make an impact is have some sort of coordination between all of us hmm. and do it in a way where some of that responsibility is automated so that it takes the daily kind of burden, you know, off of our shoulders to say, oh, well, you know, when am I going to use my washer or dryer? When am I going to run the dishwasher? When am I going to charge my car? There's enough things I forget about on a daily basis. And I still consider myself my, my moral compass for the most part, you know, pointing north. The number of things I screw up or forget about on a daily basis, it's a long list. This is where technology comes in because you apply technology in two ways. First, you create, you know, kind of distributed smart resources, right? You know, solar is now a fully de-risk technology. We can, you know, apply rooftop solar across the United States. Storage is now also being de-risked and really commoditizing in a way that folks can have energy storage systems on site. You know, level two chargers will likely, you know, propagate across garages and driveways in America. The other appliances that you find in your home that use a lot of electricity are getting smarter and are now being equipped, you know, internally, whether it's individually in these appliances or whether it's at your breaker box inside your house or somewhere other control mechanism where they can be individually controlled and managed. Now you have all this technology that's coming in and you're, you're, you're generating power on site, you're charging your electric vehicle, you're, you may be storing power that you do generate from your solar panels. And now layer in the software that's going to help us individually, but also as a collective kind of manage our consumption of energy in a way that will hopefully reduce the demand on the grid. And so now you have software that can work collectively and, and that can, you know, not only individually inside your home, but also, you know, in tandem with the utilities to say, okay, you know, this neighborhood, 
chock full of electric vehicles, high adoption rate of EVs, you know, you know, this particular neighborhood, we're going to wait to charge all of these EVs until, you know, the load on the grid is incredibly low, as opposed to saying five o'clock when everybody rolls home, what do you do? Roll into the driveway, you know, plug in your EV. That's the last thing anybody is going to want, either the utility or the consumer when they get that demand charge for the delivery of all that electricity. So I think there's an opportunity to say, all right, we've got all these technologies that are relatively de-risked and are commoditizing, you know, essentially creating kind of almost these, what are sometimes described as kind of virtual power plants inside, you know, residential and commercial buildings. Now we have these virtual power plants in all of these buildings layer on the software that's going to help us collectively manage them together so that we can have you know the impact on the grid necessary to really make a dent in this dramatically increasing demand as a result of electrification yeah no absolutely and the software element is massively needed so i'm obviously familiar with europe from the silly accent and, you know, we have split tariffs for electricity. So off-peak, on-peak, I'm sure there's something very similar there. And it's now, because of the cost of energy, become very common for everyday folk who previously paid no attention to their cost of electricity or when they were doing their washing or drying, for example. They are now consciously aware, because it's hurting them in their wallet, to put that washer dryer on at night, to use the timer function on their dishwasher or whatever it may be. And I think that it is evolving. People are learning that there's not this endless supply and that they're going to need to conserve and, and, and be a bit smarter. But if software can support them as well, not just the threat of a big bill, just maybe we can you can really make a dent in it. It's, it's fabulous to hear that the software is coming because the technology in terms of solar and there's some fantastic home options now to really be off grid you know is now a, a realistic option for some people in some places so it's exciting times ryan tell me about some of your companies and people that you've been working with and, and some of their projects that are linked to this i'd be fascinated to know where those great brains are heading towards one of the things i did after my kind of foray into you know green buildings which was you know that that first leap that i made after leaving private practice was to join an organization called Sunwealth. Sunwealth is primarily a clean energy investment firm, but what we specifically did was focus on commercial solar applications. And we found great developers that were building commercial and in some instances, residential solar projects. And we connected them with financing in order to allow those projects to move forward. And it was a fascinating opportunity to see how many places you could deploy solar and in many respects, how many places were being overlooked because people just didn't think you wanted to go put renewable energy or distributed energy resources in these communities. So quickly, we launched a fund called the Solar Impact Fund. We were aiming on you know, delivering you know, great returns for investors that wanted to invest in solar, but we made a very clear decision to go and build solar projects in underserved communities where you don't see Tesla's parked in driveways and solar panels on rooftops. We would go install solar projects on the roof of nonprofit organizations, schools, churches, low to moderate income housing, you know, industrial facilities. 
And these projects performed admirably. And guess what? People, the consumers of the energy in these buildings or the, the businesses that consumed the energy, they paid their power bills because that's what folks do. Folks are more likely to pay a power bill than they are a rent bill. Businesses are more likely to pay a power bill than they are a rent bill. And it was an amazing exercise in seeing, you know, pardon the pun, the, the, the power of kind of delivering, you know, clean, renewable, cheaper electricity to these consumers that were fundamentally being overlooked by the capitalist system, which just wants to find the best credit available and, and service that market. What my time at SunWealth and my work at SunWealth demonstrated to me was that there is just a massive opportunity. There is an absolutely massive opportunity to make this energy transition in a way that includes everybody and, you know, allows everybody to benefit from it. And that showed me, I think, both the enormity of the financial opportunity that existed and also the kind of enormity of the technical opportunity to deploy first, you know, these technologies that are, you know, commoditizing solar, you know, storage, you know, things like that, but also all the other climate technologies and clean technologies that are going to follow. I left SunWealth in 2019 to become the chief operating officer at Greentown Labs, which is a large clean tech and climate focused incubator in Boston, Massachusetts. But that lesson at SunWealth of seeing these overlooked and underserved communities and recognizing that the credit risk was being fundamentally misinterpreted and that these communities could benefit from renewable and energy and clean technology as much, if not more than other communities. And the investors can still get paid. The investors still are making their money. That kind of lesson has stuck with me and demonstrated to me that, okay, this opportunity to make this transition is so big, so freaking big. And the opportunity to do it in a way that just fundamentally benefits everybody, the, the three of us, our neighbors, the people and communities all around us. It's so exciting. And it like says to me, like why we would not do this, why we would not push this energy transition all the way through. It's mind boggling to me to think we wouldn't. The Curious Capitalist podcast on behalf of the Conscious Capitalism Connecticut chapter is created and produced by Red Rock Branding. If you are enjoying this episode, please subscribe to and share this podcast today. I absolutely agree with you. There are so many communities that would benefit so much from this. And then are you also thinking like community solar type projects where, you know, sort of like you have a farmer's CSA thing where you join a co-op or whatever and, you know, get fruits and vegetables and things from that. Also like community solar projects where I can't put solar on my roof or, you know, I don't have space to put it or or, any, or something like that, but I could buy into some other local community solar project or something or energy or battery storage thing. Is, are those things possible? Community solar is a great example. Community solar wasn't something that we did when I was at SunWealth, but after the fact over the last couple of years, SunWealth has, has moved more into working in the community solar market because the opportunity to, you know, what you described, take utility scale solar projects that you know, maybe put on, you know, abandoned farmland or maybe farther afield for, from urban centers, but give renters, give low to moderate income households, give other businesses located in higher population or higher density areas the opportunity to buy power from those projects or participate 
That's wonderful. It demonstrates it. That's an example of community solar, Gavin, that you, you brought up there as an example that there are a lot of different ways in which, you know, financial innovations, I mean, that's fundamentally what it is. You, you know, we're thinking about how people are paying or how people are underwriting a utility scale solar project. Financial innovations and, you know, kind of some of the, the social innovations that we make are going to be equally important as some of the technology innovations we make. And so as we think about, all right, how do we continue to deepen penetration of solar? We want to think about some of those financial innovations and, and tools that we can use to deepen penetration because solar as a technology is fundamentally commoditized. I mean, it's, it's de-risked. I mean, shoot, there, there's no moving parts in a solar panel, none. Knock on wood, pretty sure the sun's going to come up tomorrow and it's going to shine. If it doesn't, we got bigger problems, right? Much bigger problems. But solar as a technology is fundamentally de-risked. So you're thinking more about how do you use financial innovation, social innovation to deeper solar penetration. But then what I'm also thinking about and what, you know, led me to an organization like Greentown Labs, where it's the largest climate tech incubator in North America. What then led me to, you know, work with the fine folks at Yale and, and launch Climate Haven and New Haven and, and, you know, work at Connect Innovations, you know, is the fact that, all right, you know, solar is this DRS technology and, and now we have to think about penetrating, but what are all the other technologies they're going to follow? What has really occurred, though, the, the other two that have immediately followed in solar and i'll put wind in that category of being kind of a de-risk technology what you know solar and wind led the way but what has immediately followed is storage right? energy storage and electric vehicles so you have electric vehicle adoption you know you have the curve is kind of starting to go up it's kind of starting to go up it's kind of starting and now you're we're getting close to that holy cow moment mm -hmm. in which will occur in the latter half of this decade where ev adoption is going to go through the roof and so again to the point of like all right you know it's it's nice to see the tesla in the leafy suburb that's great but how do we get those electric vehicles everywhere hmm. well you have to think about charging and the infrastructure Absolutely. to charge these vehicles you have to think about the service infrastructure you know unseating kind of like removing kind of the existing service infrastructure that's in place for internal combustion engines and replacing it with service infrastructure for evs that is the, you know a critically important area and so you know storage ev charging ev infrastructure those are going to be really critical components and then you know there are other technologies behind those that you know are at their kind of earlier stages but you know are going to follow what you know will be storage and ev charging and ev infrastructure really being the central stories of the kind of the middle and latter part of this decade particularly the infrastructure i've got a lot of friends who have bought their first electric vehicle in the uk and across europe and love it passionate about it morally made the decision to purchase it but when they're on a long trip to scotland struggle they're struggling with the infrastructure to support long distance journeys at the moment and it's like we've got to keep up with this change with this demand this is where the future is so come on keep up i have a question for you if i may so let's talk about climate haven how did you become the ceo and how did the idea come about ryan the idea came about from a, a stakeholder group of folks at, at yale university who were very interested in starting a climate tech incubator to support a really thriving entrepreneurial community in New Haven, Connecticut, and to support the growing 
interest of both the faculty and the student body at Yale in climate and climate solutions. New Haven's a wonderful city. There is a large entrepreneurial ecosystem that is focused on biotech in New Haven. They have a really wonderful biotechnology ecosystem. And it's interesting, you know, biotech is clearly focused on human health. Climate, if you think about it, is focused on planetary health. There is quite a bit of a Venn diagram overlap between human and planetary health. And I think the stakeholder group that formed, which, which I, I mentioned consisted folks from Yale University, as well as folks in the city of New Haven, wisely looked at that and said, you know, here's an opportunity for us to kind of extend the strength of our, of our local community and, and of our, our local economy and focus on planetary health. And then so an incubator, an organization that could be rooted in New Haven and really laser focused on building climate tech companies became kind of the central activity and the, the central goal of the Climate Haven stakeholder group. Story is known at this point. I mean, I, I met these folks about a year ago or so at Greentown Labs. I was the chief operating officer and general counsel at Greentown and was the interim head of the organization during the, uh, our CEO sabbatical last year. Had helped scale Greentown pretty meaningfully over the last number of years. We opened up an incubator in Houston, Texas, you know, dramatically scaled our team, you know, brought the number of members we serve to over 150 startup companies, really kind of cemented ourselves as the leading and largest climate tech incubator in North America. I was giving these wonderful folks a tour and kind of showing them what Greentown's all about, you know, walking them through the 100,000 square foot facility we have in the Boston area. And, you know, I think it was that tour visit to other, you know, kind of key parts of the clean tech ecosystem here in Boston that really got the folks excited to do it. I left Greentown, was, you know, planning on leaving and, and left Greentown, you know, late last year. And it was funny, I knew as I did, I would likely get more involved and in, in back into you know, working on the investment side of startups. And lo and behold, in short order, a wonderful group of folks that formed that stakeholder committee were, were sending me notes and, and messages and, and encouraging me to think about helping them out. And, you know, as I've described, there is a very deep well of intellectual brilliance at Yale University and a lot of smart people in New Haven. And when I had the opportunity to both join Climate Haven, but also join Kinetic Innovation's new Climate Tech Fund, I suddenly was kind of scratching both itches, which, you know, I, are constantly on my back. One, to invest in these companies, and two, to just kind of roll up my sleeves and work with technologies and work with entrepreneurs and, and get involved in this stuff. And the ability to scratch both those itches is really cool. And I joined the Climate Tech Funds right at the end of last year. We organized Climate Haven as a kind of an entity and a, a founding board, and we got that together. I believe March 8th was our, you know, kind of organizational meeting and where I was appointed as the founding CEO. And I'm delighted to, you know, sit here in mid-May in this beautiful spring day and say we're, we're off to the races in terms of building Climate Haven and building this community. So pretend it's 18 months from now or something like that. What does a day in life of Climate Haven look like? You know, what's the environment like? What would somebody find if they showed up? A Climate Haven will have a physical space. A couple blocks from the Yale campus in New Haven will have about 16,000 square feet. And that space will have office space, so dedicated desks that companies can have. It'll have all the shared services you would expect in an office, call rooms and conference rooms and kitchens. We'll have a convening space where we can hold workshops and, and events, so hold 100 to 150 people. And we will have flex uh, prototyping space that companies can rent out so that they can do prototyping and testing, do some bench work, 
and really focus kind of on the R&D side of their technology development. So if you take all of those kind of resources we have and fast forward a year or two, when somebody enters Climate Haven, my hope is that you find 20 to 25 amazing climate tech startup companies. Some of those companies may be spin outs from Yale University. Some of the companies may have relocated to Climate Haven from New York or Boston, really just wanting to have a little more space at a little better price and, and access to more talent resources. Some may be startups that are otherwise, you know, located in Connecticut or around New England that just haven't found a home and Climate Haven is that home for them. And so you have 20 to 25 climate tech startups, though the technology areas, you know, could vary. You know, personally, my goal as I think about Climate Haven is to take a big tent approach to climate tech. And if you think about that big tent approach, it means we have to decarbonize every single sector of the economy. Carbon is this pesky, fungible thing. We can't, you know, decarbonize one sector and solve it. We have to decarbonize agriculture, buildings, heavy industry, energy and transportation. And if we're going to decarbonize all those sectors, we may want to recognize that making sure we have technologies that support availability and access to clean water and clean air, critically important, that we address waste issues, make sure we have technologies and also to address, you know, some of our sins, which means that, you know, we're going to have to have adaptive technologies and technologies that support resilience to address the damage we've already done. And also you address that, you know, there may be ways in which we cannot fully decarbonize our economy and, and you know, making carbon technologies and, and, you know, technologies that are super focused on addressing the carbon we do emit, critically important. That's the big tent. That's a really big tent. But what that does is it creates kind of an exciting cross-section of entrepreneurs that are working on different but equally difficult things. And so the magic there is that if you put kind of 20 to 25 companies that are working on different but equally difficult things, they start to rely on each other and they lean on each other because they're not direct competitors, but they're, you know, almost collaborators or, you know, kind of co-conspirators, if you will, on this mission to decarbonize our economy. You start to get a, both a certain energy and a certain magic that starts to happen when you put these entrepreneurs side by side. And so, you know, I hope if a guest were to come in, they would see that magic. Hopefully they also see a community which is inviting and welcoming and, and a place where folks can convene to talk about different climate ideas and climate solutions and, and holds events and, and, and becomes a bit of a convening space. That's not just known in New Haven, but more regionally throughout the Northeast, known as a, a real place to go and meet and talk about climate. And ultimately, doing all of that is great. It's absolutely wonderful. But at the end of the day, we want to actually, you know, GSD, get some stuff done, if you know what I'm saying. And we want to see technologies that are scaling and succeeding and hopefully departing Climate Haven and making an impact in the real world. As an example, that's why I enjoyed my work and loved my work with SunWealth so much is because solar had gotten to the point where it was a kind of a fully commoditized bankable technology. And now it's just about deploy, 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 scale it as much as we possibly can. And so my hope is that you see all that happening, but that in that magic of that wonderful space, what is emerging is some technologies that can hit the market, really scale and, and make a dent in this decarbonization journey we're on. That's absolutely fabulous. I love it. I'm going to very much enjoy stopping by and having a look and seeing this all happening. And I absolutely agree with you that 
group thing when you're in a, you know, like a makerspace or, and you're working on something and see somebody else has an idea and you can help them out and, you know, sit and having lunch together and, and sharing, exploring what you're doing and people just having great ideas and being able to help each other out. That's a, you know, fabulous way to go. If someone is excited about participating in this in different ways, how do they get in touch with you? How do they, you know, apply if they're interested in, in applying and are there criteria that they should be aware of before they do that? We welcome folks from all across the client community. You don't have to be an entrepreneur. You could be a you know policymaker, an investor, or just an enthusiast for addressing climate change. We welcome folks to follow us on social media and sign up for the newsletter. We're going to be sharing regular updates as well as sharing insights. If you are an entrepreneur and you would like to apply, our this is timely podcast here as we sit in May. We're going to open up our application process in late May. So maybe by the time this hits the, hits the streets, the application process will be open up. And what that will do, will give any entrepreneur the opportunity to apply for membership in Climate Haven. They'll have to answer some questions, submit a deck or a, maybe a, a presentation that they may have used recently in an investment round that provides an overview of Climate Haven, share more about their technology and current status of the company, and give us an opportunity to review and make sure that what the company is doing truly is going to have a climate impact and that they are a good fit for membership. As I described earlier, it's, it's not as if we have unlimited resources. Our goal is to get to a point where we are laser focused on serving 20 to 25 amazing entrepreneurs at any given time in the climate tech space. So we do want to do some evaluation, which we'll, we'll be doing hopefully in early June, as soon as the applications start rolling in. And that will give us an opportunity to welcome our first entrepreneurs later in 2023. And and as folks, whether it's the entrepreneurs or, or just general climate enthusiasts are following all of this, we will have a grand opening in the fall of 2023. And then thereafter, once we've officially opened the doors, hopefully a regular schedule of, of wonderful events, many of which will be in person, some of which will be live streamed, but a wonderful series of events that will hopefully provide all sorts of ways for folks to engage. Absolutely fabulous. So I'm assuming the application process that will be going online late May will be on the website, which is climatehaven.tech. That's climatehaven.tech. If people want to connect with you, reach out to you direct, Ryan, and have a chat, or, uh, work out what the next steps are. Are you accessible? How would people best reach you? I'm a sucker for an iced coffee, especially now that we've reached the summer months. It's like it's, my wife thinks I could survive entirely just on iced coffee, but most certainly you can definitely find me on LinkedIn and you can connect with me there. I try to regularly post updates, not only of things happening in Climate Haven, but just things around the climate tech ecosystem that I, organizations and events that I see that I think are interesting. So I would definitely recommend folks connect with me on LinkedIn. They can also send me a direct message there. I do my best to keep up. And of course, that Climate Haven newsletter will be written by me. So it will be a wonderful way to kind of get some of my insights and thoughts. And of course, when you do sign up for that newsletter and you get it from me, you can always hit that reply button and reply back. So those would be my suggestions. Fabulous. Thank you so, so much. It's an exciting project and it's so desperately needed. And I'm really excited to see where it goes. I truly am. And make sure you check out the website, climatehaven.tech. Reach out to Ryan on LinkedIn. And thank you so much for being a part of the Curious Capitalist podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. Gavin and Ryan, thank you so much. 
Thank you. Been a blast and appreciate all the great work you guys do. It's really fun to be a part of all this. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Curious Capitalist. If you would like to find out more about Conscious Capitalism, or if you would like to join the local chapter, visit the website connecticut.consciouscapitalism.org. The Curious Capitalist is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music and Spotify. If you have enjoyed listening to this episode, subscribe to and share this podcast today. This podcast was created and produced by Red Rock Branding, redrockbranding.com.